Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church Conway. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. Thanks for listening. Here recently, I was looking for, uh, I was honestly, I was looking for wallpapers for my television that's in my office. We have this TV that's there, and we use it primarily to do Zoom conferencing and and meetings, and if we have to do interviews with people, we do that through that television. We'll also use it to um, have meetings where we have to look at spreadsheets or timelines, those sort of things, but most of the time, it just kind of sits there blank, and so there's this big black wall right there on, on the side of my peripheral and so it kind of it bothers me and I saw that Nathan our student minister he had some 4k kind of videos and images going on in his office on on his television that he has in there and so I thought man I want that and so I started looking around I came across this YouTube channel called TAP T-A-P-P and it was just full of these 4k drone shots of major cities in the United States so uh, they have a couple of different variations so they're the one you're watching right now or the one that's behind me now. It's called Dallas at Night. They have Dallas during the day, Fort Worth, Austin. They, they had all the, the Texas cities. They also had Oklahoma City, Chattanooga. They had Atlanta, Nashville, uh, San Francisco, LA. They had, they had a ton of cities. And so it's really cool and, and kind of these really neat shots and, and something to just kind of put on over there. And, and I'll be honest with you, sometimes it's a little intoxicating. You just kind of like stare at it and you go to a foreign land called Dallas or something like that. And so uh, I liked it. I enjoyed it. And, and it's probably no shock to you, but my favorite was the one that you're seeing there, Dallas at night. It's, it's that reason because when people ask me where I'm from, not where my home is, that's here, Conway, but where I'm from, it is, my answer is Dallas. Dallas, Texas is where I am from. And the reason, it's my hometown. It's that, I use that, way, that phrase, hometown is like the place I am from. And the reason being because it feels homey for uh, largely because of those buildings, because there's this strength, there's this, um, this beacon nature to this giant conglomerate of this massive steel and glass of what humans can do and, and finance and, and infrastructure. I love all of that. Some of the things that people hate, like big buildings and massive highways, I love. They feel homey to me. And it got me thinking, and I'm sort of wondering, what would be your hometown? If I said that, if I said, what's the hometown? What's the place that feels homey to you? How would you respond? How would you answer? In fact, like if you were going to go and and pull up YouTube and find that tap channel, what city would you be looking for? What place would you be looking for? And more specifically, why? Why does that place feel homey to you? What is it about that place? Is it, is it the people, the way the people are, the way they greet, the way they say hello, what, what you might do on a weekend? Is it the place, like the streets? You know the streets, you know the buildings, you, the, the, the trees have a certain feeling. Where I, where I grew up, my childhood down in southern Mississippi, there's these huge oak trees with this Spanish moss that, that hang down from all of the, the oak trees in there. And, and so when I see that, there's some sort of like nostalgia that kind of drags me in. Is it, is it something like the the way the place looks, the way people say things. 
Sometimes I'll hear people talk about their hometown and they'll refer to, there's this one place, this one little kind of convenience store that every day after baseball practice, me and a couple of friends, we would stop by and we'd get this certain kind of drink, you know, and, and, and we would drink that. And there's something about that whole experience that feels like home. It might surprise you, and maybe you've never thought about this, but Jesus had a hometown. Jesus had this place that felt like home. And I know our minds kind of will jump, but let me just go ahead and, and spoil it for you. It's not Jerusalem, and it's not Bethlehem. There's this other place that Jesus talks about, that Jesus interacts with, that felt like home to him. And it's in that place that Luke paints this picture, that Luke shows us this narrative. The experience of Jesus in his hometown really kind of highlights a couple of things about his mission, about his ministry— also, this story that we're going to look at today in which Jesus, uh, you know, he, he relates or he experiences this narrative where he is preaching in his hometown, it teaches us a lot about being, I don't know, rejected and accepted and exactly what it is that God expects us to do with this person named Jesus. That's what we're going to look at today from Luke chapter 4. But before we get into that, let's pray together. God, thank you for your words of encouragement for this message, God, that should just permeate everything we do and everything we are. God, I pray for those specifically that are tuning in. Maybe they saw a friend shared online, and, and they just decided today they were just going to kind of peek into what's happening with the second family. I pray for them. I pray for those who are, walked, who, who are walking into our buildings even now. God, I pray for those who are tuning in who would love to be here, but they just can't yet. But I want to pray for those who've come to us with rejection on their hearts. Maybe they've been rejected or isolated by a loved one. God, they feel rejected by culture or academia, by their professional circles, whatever that is. God, I pray that they would feel your love and your acceptance today, that they would see it on our faces and in our voices, that they would hear it in your word. God, I pray as we wrestle with the concept of rejection that we would land on, that we would live in this reality of acceptance. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. So like I said, Luke chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 16. And I'm going to read down. Uh, the, the, the story really divides real easily uh, around 21, 22. So let me read that first section to you. You follow along in your Bible. It's on the screen behind me if you want to. He, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written. This is what Jesus—he reads this part from what we call the Old Testament. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began by saying to them, today as you listen, the scripture has been fulfilled. Verse 22. This is one, the last one I'm going to read right now. And they were all speaking well of him, like compliments, encouragement, good news. And were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, isn't this Joseph's son? That's kind of the comment that they said there. You see, Luke actually goes through a, a lot of effort. 
He spends a lot of time really showing us this concept of this is a place where Jesus feels at home. He's conveying familiarity. That this is a place where Jesus' actions and his culture and the people that are there, this is all something he's used to. This is his culture. This is his people. This is his place. Look at verse 16 again. You notice where it said, this is where he had been brought up. As we started just a minute ago, I asked you, where is your hometown? Where is that place? And for many of you, it may be right here. It may be Conway. It may be a, a neighboring community, Little Rock or something like that. But for Jesus, it was Nazareth. This is the place that Jesus had spent his childhood. This is the place he had learned to, um, you know, to, to fight. He had learned to, to be a carpenter. This is where he went to school. This is his hometown. It's where he is comfortable. This place, this is the place where he knows the streets, he knows the people, he knows the smells, he knows everything about Nazareth. He's the, this is the kind of place where he could, um, from experience, talk about, you, you see that, that place over there? That used to be Bet Al um, Smith's, which just means like the house of Smith's in Hebrew. And so that's Bet Al Smith's. And uh, if you would go past their place, and, and as kids, if, if you quoted the Shema to them, they'd give you a cookie. And, and they, they were really nice, but then they sold it, and now it's a tax office. Jesus could say that sort of stuff about the buildings and the places in Nazareth. It's the kind of place where he knew where to go, but he, he wasn't real sure about the names of the streets, because this is just the kind of place where he feels at home. Nazareth is his place. Then there's that phrase where Luke says, and as usual. So he's at the place where he was brought up, but then as usual, he goes on, he teaches and preaches. There's kind of really two ways to understand what Luke is saying with the as usual phrase. Either, and this is a great way to understand it, this is just what Jesus did. Like, as usual. I mean, if you, if you know Jesus, and it's the Sabbath, as usual, he's going to be in synagogue. And that's true. Another way to understand this is that he's talking about the people, the Nazareth people, that as usual, they were in the synagogue. And as usual, they were listening to somebody preach. This is their normal culture. This is the thing, as usual, meaning that Jesus is doing what everybody was doing there in Nazareth. If you come to a worship service here at Second Baptist, it is going to be pretty standard, generally speaking. Now, that does not mean that the Holy Spirit cannot rule and reign in what we do. In fact, I believe that the Holy Spirit is a Holy Spirit of order and purpose and plan. And when you come to one of our services, we're going to have a time of singing. We're going to agree. We're going to center everything around the Word of God. And we're going to try then to respond to the preaching of the Word of God. And that's generally the way that things go here. It's also generally the way that things go in a lot of Baptist churches. You can go to a lot of Baptist churches across our country, and maybe the churches that you grew up in, and it was similar to that, but not exactly the same. The, the, the same thing is going on with the synagogues there in Nazareth and Israel, and this is the northern part of Israel. But if you went to a synagogue in the southern part of Israel, it would have been pretty similar. They all would have quoted the Shema together. They would have read from three different parts of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. There was the Pentateuch, there was the Law, there was the Prophets, and then there was the Poetry. They would have read those three sections together. The three sections of text were picked, were chosen, because they had a common theme. 
And then the attendant, the person responsible for that synagogue, would have already invited somebody to stand up and, and read a passage from the, um, you know, I keep saying Old Testament. They didn't call it that, but from the older book, you know, read the scrolls there and then explain it. Sit down and explain it. People would ask questions. It was sort of a dialogue. They would sing some songs together and then they'd leave. I, I guess they would go to Luby's or something. Right after that, that's what they would do. Every synagogue you went to, that is what they would do because it's just as usual. As usual, that's what they did. And this is helpful for us as we start to see this part of Jesus because a lot of times Jesus is depicted as being this renegade, this rebel without a cause. He's always walking around just jabbing at the religious people. And he's always walking around just kind of messing with them, starting fires and seeing how things would burn. But that's not the way that Jesus was. Jesus wasn't pushing against things. Jesus wasn't starting a big fire or a revolt in that he was doing something completely different. It's just that Jesus was participating in all the things that normal Jewish people in Nazareth participated in. He just understood it the way that God wanted him to understand it. It wasn't this revolt from the outside. It was a reformation from the inside. It was respectful. It was decent. It was, it was normal, but it did cause a lot of problems. But what we're seeing here is that there is this place where Jesus feels comfortable, his hometown. But then there's also these actions. As usual, this is what Jesus did. It made me think about, um, it made me think about a tradition in Texas. And I asked a couple of people this week about this tradition. I said, did you guys do homecoming mums? And uh, most people looked at me like I was crazy. But we have a picture of a homecoming mum. In Texas, during homecoming in a high school, when um, a, a young man likes a young girl, he would ask her to the homecoming dance, and he would get her a mum, okay? You've seen mums before, like at Kroger. You know, they sell them at fall, and they're like that big, right? Not in Texas. Um, so these things are huge. And, and generally speaking, they'll be about this big. She'll wear it on her shirt that day. And then there'll be all these ribbons and these banners. They go down. And, and how much his mama loves that little girl is directly related to how long um, those ribbons are and how many there are. A lot of times her name will be on one of those ribbons and glittery stuff. His name will be on that. If he plays football, there'll be a little football hanging there. If their mascot's like a bear or something, that'll be stuck in the mom. Um, you know, it's just this huge, gaudy thing. This little girl here on the screen, that girl is betrothed to be married, all right? And so uh, um, she is loved like no one else has ever been loved in Texas, right? And so, um, and, and as much as you look at that and go, that's insane. That is excessive gaudiness. To be completely honest with you, if you're from Texas, this doesn't look weird or odd or unusual. I can kind of see how it does now that I live somewhere— I literally thought the whole nation did mums. I thought everybody did this, but apparently not. This does not look crazy to somebody like that. It's similar with what Jesus is doing here. If you were to go to a first century Jewish synagogue, it would feel completely odd, really look weird. You're like, do I stand? Do I sit? Is it time to pray? Where are we, what are we reading? And what language are you speaking? Everything would have been so unusual to you, but for Jesus, it is completely natural. There is no place on the planet where Jesus feels more at home than what he's doing and where he is in this text. It's his place. It's his culture and custom. It is his people. Look at verse 22 when it says, And they were all speaking well of 
Joseph's son. They were all speaking well of Joseph's son. Now, there's going to be some theological implications to what's going on in this text, but largely speaking, when you're just reading it, they're talking about a young man that they knew. You know, Jesus was not invited to speak that day because he was the Christ. Jesus is not invited to speak that day at synagogue because he is the son of the living God. To them, he was just a young man from around there. And he had preached a couple times in other towns, and apparently he's pretty decent. So I think some of the synagogue leaders got together, and I could hear one of the ladies standing over there, and they're all just kind of talking like, who, who do you want to get on Saturday to teach? And they're like, you know, Jesus is in town, and I hear he's doing all right. When you hear what they're saying here, we, we got to be careful not to read into, we know that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, you know? But they're just like, isn't that Joseph's boy? He's a pretty decent talker. Let him do that, you know? And so they just invite him to come up there, and that's what he does. Because this is his place. This is his customs and culture. And these are his people. These are his people, and he is their people. They're all a part of all that's going on here. This is his place, his culture, their people. Like I said, there's no other place on the globe where he feels more comfortable or at home. He is absolutely accepted right here in this place. And if I can, just for a second, if I can pause and, and step outside of the text, but kind of point at something here. I understand that the text is about to take this violent turn. I get that. Violent literarily, where it's just going to totally shift in what's going on, but also violent in the fact that there's going to be a, a, a murder attempt. I get that that's what's about to happen in the text. But just for a second, can I just say this? I hope that we as a church, we as a people— we are actually what they failed to be. That we are a people and a place that is warm and accepting. That we as a church are the kind of people and we do things that just kind of make people feel accepted and warm. When they come in here and they maybe not at first know what's going on and maybe this is you. Maybe you're sitting here and you're kind of looking around and, and this is the first time that you've ever been a part of something and they keep calling themselves family which totally sounds like a cult but they keep doing that, you know, and and you're not really sure what all that is that's going on, but I hope that we would just live it out where people would see they're all just normal, broken people. And maybe out there, if I just ran into them, we'd be on different sides of the issue. We'd be on different sides of economics, maybe different sides of the tracks, maybe different sides of educational degrees. But then they all come in here and it's like, it's like home. It's like family. We love one another. And they're all that kind of people. And this is that kind of place. And then they do these weird things where they are actually constantly sacrificing for the good of other people. That they have these gospel conversations where they accept one another and extend grace and forgiveness to one another. That they speak with love. Whenever we have new staff come on board, I'm always, um, we go through what we call our family values. And one of those values is speak love. And the way I explain that is, you know the phrase that your, your mama said, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all? Y'all remember that phrase? Well, I always say, mama was wrong. It's not if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. Here. Here, it's if you can't say something nice, look harder. There is always something you can say to encourage somebody else. It's a value. It's one of the things we—it's just what the second family does. We are going to find a way to speak encouragement to one another. I hope and pray— I'm fighting for this. I'm a part of the family in a way that we would be 
the kind of community that they failed at being. A lot of the text is this shadow, is this, is this longing for something deeper. And I pray that we are that thing. And yet, verse 22, there's this verse there. Let's, let's read it again. Verse 22 says, um, And they were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. And yet, they said, isn't this Joseph's son? That yet there is a transitional word. It's transitional in the phrasing. It's transitional in the narrative. It's transitional in the culture and the, and the attitude that's about to happen here. Yet, something different is about to happen. You got to ask yourself, how did we get to this yet? And furthermore, how are we going to get to the next part? How do they go from, we like this boy, to kill him? How do we get to that phrase? That's what we're going to look at right now. Starting up just a little bit, Jesus sits down and he explains the text. This, this kind of actually made me laugh this week when I was reading this because I was remembering back a few years ago, preachers would get in trouble if they, if they sat down to preach. It was like a trend. It was a cool thing people were doing. They sat down to preach and people would get onto them. Jesus sat down to preach. I'm just saying. So he sits down to preach and this is what he says in verse 20, starting kind of in 20. Then he rolled a scroll, gave it back to the attendant. He sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began by saying to them, Today as you listen, the scripture has been fulfilled. That word fulfilled, when Jesus speaks that word fulfilled, he is making one of the boldest claims in all of preaching history. Jesus just read a passage from Isaiah 61 in which everyone everywhere understood that text to be talking about the Messiah, to be talking about the future one that would come, the Savior who would come and, and bring about God's judgment and establish the throne room of David. He was, he's going to reestablish uh, David's throne and bring about God's judgment. And Jesus reads that, and then he says, that's me. I'm that." Fulfilled, he's saying everything that you thought was happening is happening, and I'm that person. It's something that would raise some eyebrows. This is the sort of thing that would normally get you killed in Israel, but it doesn't seem to really make them that mad. They, they, they're thinking, they're, they're listening to him, but trust me, it gets worse as the people are sitting there. In verse 23, he says this weird proverb. He says, no doubt you're going to say to me, uh, you're going to quote the proverb, doctor, heal yourself. What's happening in Capernaum? Make it happen here. Listen, when I first read that, I'm listening to Jesus' sermon here. I'm reading it. I'm trying to picture myself there. It was an interesting thing because the people didn't all sit out in front of the speaker. They kind of sat along the sides like this. And so I'm picturing myself sitting there alongside, and I'm listening to Jesus as he sits, and he's explaining all of this. And he says, uh, you're going to quote the proverb, Dr. Heal Yourself. And I'm, in my mind, I'm thinking, Huh? I have no idea where you're going with this. Like, what's going on? And so I had to dig a little bit and study a little bit. And essentially the phrase that Jesus, the proverb that Jesus is using there is the same thing that we would say, no doubt you're going to say to me, put up or shut up. No doubt you're going to tell me to put my money where my mouth is. So he's highlighting not only their peaked interest, but also their skepticism. He's saying, look, I know that you're skeptical. I get that you're wanting me to prove to you the things that I have claimed. When I stand up here and I say I'm the Messiah, I understand that you're going to say, eh, let's see it. Show me a trick. Show me a sign. 
He says, I get that. I know that you are going to do that. He's really, really taking the text that he just read about the, the Messiah and he's pushing it right into their heart and saying, you've got to respond to this. You're going to respond with interest. You're going to respond with skepticism. And then he moves on to the next one, a different saying that I think is a lot easier for us to understand in, in verse 24. He says, a prophet is not accepted in his hometown. He's making a prophecy claiming to be a prophet. He says, I know a prophet is not accepted in his hometown. Two really bold things to say. Not only is he saying he's the Messiah, but he's also saying that he is a prophet. He's saying, I know what's about to happen because I am a prophet. And he's putting himself equal to two of the most infamous of all the prophets, two of the most famous of all the prophets, Elijah and Elisha. He's really pushing into this concept, really making it personal. Sometimes when you drive through a, a town, wherever you're driving there, it doesn't matter what state you're in, you're going to pass these signs. You, you know what I'm talking about. There's a sign on the outside of the town that says, home of, and then something, right? Or, or birthplace of some person. And, and I always enjoy it. I really like the ones when you drive by and everybody's like, who's that? You know, nobody, nobody cares except for the 10 people that live in that town. And so it's home of, and then whatever. I know Hope, Arkansas has one of these and some other places have these. I was thinking about Conway, and I was like, what would be, what would be like if we did? I don't think we have one of those. I've driven in from each side, and I don't think we have one of those, but if we did, who, who would we put on this sign? And so I looked it up. I looked up a couple of different ones. One, uh, Chris Allen, everybody knows Chris Allen is from here. That's a big deal. Another one I thought was interesting is, is Jack Graham. The interesting thing about it to me is in Dallas, every, nearly everybody knows Jack Graham, but in Conway, a lot of people Never heard of the guy, you know? And so I thought that was interesting, just sort of that, that um, dichotomy there. Another one is George Washington Donaghy. George Washington Donaghy. Donaghy is a word, a phrase, a name, a street that we use all the time, especially if you're involved in the college or if you're on this side of town. Donaghy is a name that you're going to say a lot. You may say it with curse words, but it's a name that, that you say a lot when you're driving down the street of Donaghy. And I wondered to myself, who is George Washington? Did you know that George Washington Donaghy was a builder? He's a constructor man. He made stuff all over um, Arkansas. One of the things that he made was the first bank that was in Conway. He was pretty good at being a, and I'll be honest, I don't know what the word is here, a constructor, a carpenter. It wasn't just a carpenter. He built real big buildings. He was pretty good at it, except for he ran into some financial issues when he tried to build the second Faulkner County Courthouse here in Conway. He, he, it just nearly killed him financially. He also ran into issues when he tried to build the Capitol building in Little Rock, which he did, but it took him a long time. It took him, I think, 12 years is what I read, because the politicians at the time uh, really fought him on it. And so he really struggled with, you know, building that courthouse. He struggled so much to the point that he decided to become a politician. Politicians got on his nerves so bad that he became a politician, and eventually he became the 22nd governor of our fine state, Arkansas. He's the 22nd governor of our fine state. George Washington um, Donaghy was neither born nor died in Conway, but he claims Conway as his home, and apparently Conway claims him back. All right? It's a love relationship there. I don't know what his building skills say about the quality of that road, but still, you know, it's just, it's a cultural thing. But that's not the case with Jesus. 
While Jesus claims Nazareth, Nazareth does not claim him back because prophets are not claimed in their own hometown. Kind of like Jesus or Jack Graham or other people. Prophets are not claimed in their hometown. He is pushed aside. He is rejected. You can see the buildup, the gradual building of what Jesus is teaching here. Of his remarks, he is saying, I am the Messiah, the one sent by God to restore humanity's relationship with God. And you'll want proof. You'll want a sign. You'll want some evidence, but it's not even going to matter because you're going to reject me. You're going to push me aside. Then he brings up those two uh, prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And without going into all of the, uh, the history or the stories that happened with Elijah and his protege, Elisha, Jesus is essentially bringing to mind this concept of, or this time frame by picking those two prophets. He is bringing this idea of a time where Israel was most famous for rejecting God. It was nobody in Israel was following God. It felt like that. In fact, there's a quote where he says, there's no other prophets in Israel, that they were constantly rejecting God. They had horrible kings and queens. They had horrible leadership, and nobody was listening to the words of God. So he brings up these two prophets, and he's showing them about that idea of rejection. Furthermore, as he talks specifically about what the prophets did— Look at verse 24. He says, He also said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But I say to you, there were certainly widows in Israel in Elijah's day. When Elijah's day, remember, that's the time when Israel is rejected. When the sky was shut up for three years and six months with a great, or while a great famine came over the land. Yet, Jesus has his own yet. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them except a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And I believe when Jesus said it, he really emphasized that word, Sidon. All right? He probably didn't say it like that, but still, you know, Sidon. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel. See, he's, you see how he keeps going, time or day? That era, there were many in Israel who had leprosy. And yet not one of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. All right? Sidon and Syria really like stabbed them in their heart. He says, you're going to, I am the Messiah. You're going to want a sign, but you're going to reject me. And you know what God is going to do? Plow around. Jesus is showing them that they're going to reject Jesus and there are consequences to rejecting God. You can't reject God time after time after time and expect God to stay right there. That eventually God is going to move on. And the consequence or the moving on that God is going to do, what Jesus is prophesying, what Jesus is saying, is that God is going to go and bless, go and save, go and rescue other people. He's going to leave you. If you just keep rejecting him, he's going to leave you, and he's going to go and bless and save other people. And it turns out, not only is he going to go bless and save other people, but he's going to go save the Gentiles, the ones from Syria and Sidon. Those Gentiles, those people, not only other people, but people you hate. It's like a wound and then salt in the wound. He's going to leave you. You reject him, he will leave you, and he will go to those you hate. Now, catch this and make sure that you're understanding this, or make sure I needed to make sure that I'm understanding this, is that Jesus is not talking about God doing something for spite. That's not the way that God operates. He's not like, oh, all right, you rejected me. 
you rejected me, then I am going to go over here and bless people you hate. See how much you like that. He's not doing this to be like vengeful or spiteful because if you remember back when Abram was called in the beginning of the Bible, God says, hey, you, I want you to follow me to a place you've never known and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. This has always been the plan of God. So what Jesus is saying, what God is doing, what God does do is you can go with me or not, but I'm going to go save the world. Come with me or not, but I'm going to go save the world. That's why they get so mad. That's why they get so angry. Jesus stands up and says, you rejected God, God is going to reject you, and he's going to go save the people that you reject. Verse 28 through 30, this whole preaching, teaching sermon of Jesus really comes to a head. It says, and when they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They were mad, like really mad which is interesting because just like five, literally five seconds ago, they're like, I like this kid. And they were enraged and they got up and drove him out of the town and they brought him to the edge of the hill that their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. And 31's not in our text, but it says, and then he went down to Capernaum. I love the way that Luke just says something so like, wait, hold on, what, what, what are you talking about here? And he just says it, and then he moves on to the next part. Y'all remember those old cartoons where, like, the, uh, the dog and the cat, the cat starts a, a fight with the dog, you know, and, and, then, and it's like all this dust, and all this stuff is going on, and then the cat, like, sneaks out of the bottom of the dust cloud, and, and the dog is sitting there choking himself, you know, like that when the dust— that's how I picture this whole story. Like they're, they're all going out to the edge of the cliff and there's dust and everybody's mad and curse words and rocks and stuff. And, um, and then Jesus like kind of crawls out the back and they just throw some random guy off the side of the cliff and they're like, oops. That's how I picture the whole scene. But Luke's like, yeah, that happened. It's not a big deal. Um, it's a really big deal, Luke. Put more attention on that. Because it's not the big deal. The big deal to Luke was that they were enraged. What made them so mad what made them, you know, here's what Luke is trying to show you. In a place where he should have been accepted, Jesus is rejected. Why? Because of who he accepted. And for telling them that God loves them too. That's what made them want to kill him. Ah, boy thinks he's the Messiah. Boy thinks he's a prophet. God loves others kill him. That's the progression. That's what's going on in the story. It really pushes this whole idea up here to the front because, and it helps us when we think about this idea of accepted or rejected. It's an important part of God's story because like I said in my prayer earlier, and I mean the same thing, those of you who are watching online or you're sitting here in this room, maybe you're going to listen to the podcast later, you're sitting there feeling, and don't we all feel at times absolutely rejected? Our, our peer groups will pass us over for other people to get the raise or the job or, 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 or whatever it is, the magazine or, or the journal that really highlights your career. is going to look at somebody else. They, 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 and, it's a, and you know, it's an obvious rejection because you haven't made a decision. You haven't done this. You feel rejected romantically. You, you, you show love and affection towards somebody else and then they reject you and you feel isolated and alone and in pain. And that's a real pain. That's a hurt that you carry. You want to be included in this group, but for whatever reason, they've got more money or they've been blessed in some way and you feel outside and there's nothing you can really do about that. 
You walk into certain crowds and certain, and they have PhDs or, or, or doctorates or, or, or something like that. They have doctor in their title, and you feel like, man, I'm not smart enough to, to be here. Or these clothes I'm wearing, this isn't, this isn't the brand. Or the car I'm driving isn't. We just walk around with this constant nagging hurt, this constant nagging outside of the group. You stay over there. You hush. You be over there. And Jesus so completely walks with you in that. Jesus so completely knows that feeling. It wasn't just strangers that he just met at college. It wasn't just people that are writing in some journal that he's never met. These are his people. This is his dad's friends and his mom's friends. Some of these ladies changed him as a baby. One of them gave him a cookie when he learned the Shema. Some of them helped him learn to ride a bike. They didn't have bikes, but some of them helped him learn to ride a bike. And now they're going to throw him off a cliff. He felt deep, hurting, agonizing rejection. And he did that for a reason. So when we stand back and we look at the text and you've got this very clear theme, acceptance and rejection. And we got to sit here and sit in this and feel this and understand a couple of things. The first one is this, that God accepts the unacceptable. That God longs, God chases down those who are rejected. You remember in Isaiah 61, as Jesus is quoting this, he says, He sent me, who? He sent me to the captives, to the blind, to the oppressed, to the outsiders, to the nobodies, to the ones you don't love. God sent me to them. The Messiah is here, and I have come for them. God accepts the outsider, the unaccepted, which is good if you walked in here feeling like you're unaccepted. You are accepted. You are loved. There's also no pre-approval with God. You either accept him or you reject him. God's grace extends to those who accept Jesus. That's the bond. That's the point. God's grace, God's gospel, God's love is extended to those. And all you have to do is accept Jesus. You don't walk in here and get everything. And so I really want to speak to those of you who have maybe thought this thought. You didn't say it out loud, or maybe you did, but you have thought this thought. Let me clean up all the stuff in my life. Let me get rid of this, this skeleton in my closet. Let me really get a hold of the sin that, that keeps getting a hold of me. Let me make sure I've lived past those bad decisions long enough. Then I will accept God. Then I will accept Jesus. Because what you're thinking in your mind is, if I get all of that, then he'll accept me back. There's no pre-approval with Jesus. You just accept him. He's just offering grace to you. He's offering forgiveness to you. He knows all of that stuff in your closet, and he still offers to accept you. The, the bigger push, the big decision that you have to make today is exactly what they had to make. Do you accept or do you reject Jesus? Do you accept him for who he is? The Messiah, the prophet, the one sent by God, or do you reject him? That's your decision today. Here recently, we have an engagement in our church. A young couple was engaged, Lily and Zachary, sitting right over here. And I'm, I'm not super close to them at all. I, I don't really know them that much, but I saw it on Facebook and I was super excited. I saw an engagement, and engagements are fun. Every time I see on Facebook somebody's engagement, especially if they're in the second family, if they're young or maybe not that young, and they get engaged, I'm like, that's fun. 
there's something just so fun about engagements because, and we all cheer for them, right? We all kind of get excited, even if you're like, oh, that's savvy stuff. At the same time, you're like, it's kind of cool, but I don't care, you know? And so I get excited about it I get excited because there's so much like uh, drama in it, and we should be excited for engagements. We should, unless it's like at the end of a reality TV show. We should be excited when people get engaged because that's a train wreck. This is good, you know? And we're looking at it, and, and there's this, and there's this, there's this happiness, and there's this potential, and there's all of this stuff that's happening because, and in that moment, he's saying, out of all the she's in the world, out of all the hers, I choose you. You are the one that I choose. I know all this kind of junk about you, and I like you anyways, you know, and, and that's what he's saying. And then she's looking back at him, and then hopefully, this is the part where we all get like, especially if it's on like a jumbotron. Um, he's, she's standing there, and, and she says, hopefully, I choose you back, you know, like I accept you back. That's what this whole thing means. I choose you now. I choose you forever. And then and, and a big part of it is that he's going to do something in this moment, usually. He's going to do some gesture, right? Some big show of his love, like, um, like lying to her and, and getting her someplace where people can take pictures or on the jumbotron or a really cool old bridge or something like that. He's going to get her there. That's the gesture. And then he's going to give her something expensive, like really expensive, like the ring that I bought Jackie and then later lost, which is a different story. But still, I'm gonna, he's going to give her something expensive. There's this huge gesture of love. And then there's an expense that says, right now, in front of everyone, I love you. I choose you. I accept you. And I'm going to do that, like, literally forever, you know? That's what's going on in all that. That's why we cheer for it. That's why we accept it. That's why we like those pictures. That's why we do that. That's the romantic side of things, and it's cool, and I love it. But there's a spiritual thing in which Jesus did exactly the same thing. Jesus makes this huge gesture this massive bigger than life gesture that's not just a gesture because through death he beats death for you and in that action he says I accept you I choose you all of the bad stuff that you've done all of the bad things you did I take all of that I take all of it on me and I still choose you and then he extends to us the most expensive, the invaluable of all invaluable. His own blood, his own life. You can have life. That's what Jesus does on the cross. That's what Jesus does at Calvary. This huge, grand, expensive gesture that screams to every one of you, I choose you. And then, right now, if you haven't, you have the opportunity to choose him back, to accept him back, and to be loved and part of the family. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.